Okay, we're in John chapter 12 this afternoon and be reading from verse 27 to 30. 27 to 30, only three verses, but, well, it's quite a bit there, just the same. And when it's, when it's all about our Lord. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified and will glorify again. The people therefore that stood by and heard said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you that you bless us with your word. We do thank you, Father, that you blessed us with the work of your Son, that he came to redeem us from our sins, and that he truly did glorify the Father in heaven, and he glorified, he himself was glorified in the Father, even as he died for our sins upon the cross. And so we thank you, Father, for this great work of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we have um, come to this particular passage of Scripture, we should pause here just for a moment and reflect upon these words as uh, they are recorded concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this passage reveals one of those personal prayers of the Lord Jesus as He prays to His Father in heaven, seemingly in the presence of those who were gathered with Him At this time, his prayer is poured out to God the Father. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Notice this question mark there. Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified and will glorify again. I left out the... um, it there because actually it's supplied and doesn't have to be read with it and to me it makes pretty good sense without it um, three areas we want to look at here uh, this afternoon uh, under the theme of Father glorify thy name uh, Jesus prayed as his soul was troubled he was very troubled in spirit as we knew that uh, this particular hour for which he came into the world was now coming to um, that place of where it would be necessary for him to die and suffer for the sins of the world. And so his soul was troubled, it says. Um, Secondly, uh, also in verse 27, Father, should I say, save me? Um, It's kind of rephrased a little bit in this particular context. But he is praying either from the vantage point of knowing what he would have to do and he is also praying from the vantage point of saying, Lord, should I pray that you save me or should I just pray as as in my spirit that I will come to this hour? Therefore, humanly speaking, we might say, Lord, would you save me from this hour? We know he had these moments in the garden, right, which sounded like he was asking the Lord to to save him from that 
that time. Yet we know that he came for that very reason. Well, interesting uh, thought there. And then lastly, he says, Father, glorify thy name. Um, as the Jesus, of course, is one with the Father, one in, in spirit, one in purpose, um, yet we know that the Godhead, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of them co-equal and co-eternal, we find that Jesus came to fulfill the Father's will, in that he should glorify the Father, in that the Father should glorify him. And so this is a, a kind of a, a place that we can pause and reflect upon these things um, this afternoon. For the Son to glorify the Father, he must do the Father's will. For the Son to be glorified, he must die the death of deaths to pay the just penalty for sin, and that he should be victorious over sin and death. You see, Jesus did truly come in the heart and will of God the Father to die for us. And so he had to suffer this death of deaths, as, as it is called. A death which is un, unlike any other. Because Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, and because he is the incarnate from God, he, he himself was in human body. God in human flesh. God in human nature. And we may think that these things are totally um, different, certainly in nature, to have a human to have a human nature and to have a divine nature together is um, something that we don't find anywhere else in the Scripture. Of course, it is truly um, a miracle of God that God should send His Son as He did to die for our sins. And so these three years we'll look at here. First of all, Jesus prayed as his soul was troubled. As we look here at verse 27 this afternoon, he says, Now my soul was troubled. And what shall I say? My soul was troubled. And uh, so Jesus um, coming to this very hour when he should enter into that time when he would be betrayed, and that he would uh, go through a great uh, um, trial, an unjust trial, that he should be condemned to die for, this, for a nation as um, one of their very own men in the... Uh, order of the religious rulers of the day prophesied that it was better that one should die for the nation. And we find that um, this particular death was uniquely related to Christ and to the redemption which he would bring in. Jesus prayed for he was troubled in his spirit, the word for troubled here is the word terasso. Uh, that is the root word. 
and uh, the actual word which kind of refers to the troubling part of it, the agitation, if you will, in his spirit is somewhat different, but it comes from this root word, and it has a strong meaning, uh, first of all, in a natural sense, like the stirring up of water, uh, to troubling of water. Now, you may remember on one particular occasion uh, at the Pool of Bethesda, there was, uh, they were waiting for an angel to come and trouble the water. Uh, the sense that God would send an angel to do some miraculous work upon individuals who were waiting to come into that pool. Uh, but here we find that the troubling was in the spirit of Jesus. He was greatly troubled. He was great ag greatly agitated in his spirit. Now we understand that Jesus is uh, human and divine both. He has a human nature and a divine nature. And so these being in conflict with one another, um, he felt very much troubled in his spirit as any person would feel troubled in their spirit if they were facing death. Death has a way of troubling people. Uh, those who go into the army or some military um, where they are committed to battle and to go to war no doubt become very troubled in their spirit when they find that they have to face the enemy and it may mean that they might die. Uh, but there are other occasions of course when someone might be troubled uh, if they have some medical condition it seems like cancer today is is one of those um, dreaded diseases that people don't want to hear that word because immediately they, they sense that they may die from that disease. Or if someone is uh, overtaken by a, a tragic accident or incident that leaves them in a very perilous or critical state, they may find themselves facing death and they may be very troubled in their spirit, leaving behind many things that they had great hopes to enjoy in life. Family and friends and possessions and so forth. Maybe many reasons why someone might be troubled. And here is Jesus, he is troubled in his spirit because he was sent by God the Father into the world to do something so amazingly impossible that he would die for the sins of the world. And when we talk about uh, something of this nature, of course, it goes beyond our com uh, complete understanding. We just realize what sin is. It is a transgression of the commandment of God of the law of God, if you will. And here is God's only begotten Son being sent into the world that he might make atonement for all of those who should believe upon him that their sins would be forgiven, atoned for, appeased, the wrath of God appeased through the death of Christ, 
the death of deaths, that he may be the means of redemption to as many who would believe upon him. Adam Clark puts it this way. He says, Now my soul is troubled. Our blessed Lord took upon him our weaknesses, that he might sanctify them to us. As a man, he was troubled at the prospect of a violent death. Nature abhors death. God has implanted that abhorrence in the natural man, that it might become the principal element of self-preservation. You know, if we, th- if we think we're going to be in danger of dying, we would do everything we can to preserve our life. You see a car coming at you head on, and, and uh, you're going to do something, if possible, to avoid hitting that car, because you know that it could lead to death for you or death for your family. And so self-preservation kicks in when you think you're in that kind of danger. As it is to this that we owe all the prudence and caution by which we avoid danger. When we see Jesus working miracles which demonstrates his omnipotence and godhood, we should be led to conclude that he was not mere man were it not for such passages as these. Referring to this prayer that he is praying to God. The reader must ever remember that it was essentially necessary that he should be man. In other words, that that Jesus should come into the world as a man to die. Why? Because it takes a sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice is necessary. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And who could make such a supreme sacrifice but God's only begotten Son? For without being such, he could not have died for the sins of the world. Yea, he was the God-man. And so we find that this was entirely um, a unique situation. That Jesus should come and die as he would. Concerning the incarnation of Christ, he was born to die as a man... Concerning his sacrifice for our sin as Son of God, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And of course we remember John the Baptist saying those very words, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus was to suffer in his humanity all the temptations and infirmity of human flesh, yet without sin. All the temptations and infirmity of the human flesh, yet without sin. See in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, just Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So we find that Jesus, of course, had to suffer all the temptations and infirmities of the human flesh. 
which included this part of his suffering as well. Those agonies before the cross were very much important to him feeling the infirmity and the temptation of our human flesh. And so as much as we know that Jesus was uh, accepting the very will of God and knowing that he came to die for the sins of the world and must do so, yet at the same time in his human flesh, he was feeling the temptation of desiring to preserve his life, if at all possible. Now that may seem like a contradiction, but when we understand that Jesus had to feel these temptations, had to feel these infirmities as a human man, otherwise how would he know, and we know, that he suffered as we do, you see. I mean, God is certainly above man. God is, God is uh, so high and holy above us without sin. But God sent his only begotten son into the world that he took upon himself a human body that he might feel the temptations and the infirmity of the flesh yet without sin. And so he had to feel these temptations and infirmities. And we know that he did. In Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help them that are tempted. He is able to help them that are tempted. And so we find that uh, because Jesus was tempted, because Jesus had the infirmities of the human flesh, because of those sufferings which Jesus suffered, we know that he was able to understand our temptations our sufferings and those infirmities in which we bear. And so what do we do but we go to him in prayer. And when you and I go through some temptation, when you and I go through some sufferings of the human flesh, when you and I go through some part of, of the infirmity of being mortal and we go to Christ in prayer we know that he himself bore those same temptations those same infirmities those same sufferings and there isn't any kind of temptation that Jesus did not overcome there is no indication that he left one out, but he bore them all within his own body and sufferings. He took upon himself the sins of the world. All of the sins of the world. All of those various kinds of sins that are, that are perpetrated against God in the world. Can we leave any of them out? and hope that we have a Savior that understands us, 
or that has died for our sins upon the cross? Can we leave any of those crimes against God absent from the sufferings of Jesus? I do not think any of us want to. Because who then would be our Savior? Who then would be our true sacrifice? Who then would be our Lamb of God who shed his precious blood for us, you see? And so when you see somebody in some great sin, and you see somebody in some great infirmity, in some great suffering, remember Jesus bore them all in himself. Not that he himself did every one of them. No, but he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And that he died for every sin. Now these things are hard to think on perhaps. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For he made him to be sin for us. Jesus was made sin for us. And so this was truly a great work of redemption beyond our scope of understanding, I'm sure, as we think about it. Yet we grapple with these things because we need such a Savior. In fact, the world cannot be saved, you know, any part of it, nor anyone in it, apart from such a Redeemer. Even the nature itself will be redeemed by God. Because of man's sin, a great curse fell upon nature itself. But one day, even that will be eradicated. In Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so we find through Adam's sin that many fell into the disobedience and the sin which was perpetrated against God. But by the obedience of one, even the Lord Jesus Christ, our second Adam, we find that many shall be made righteous. Many shall be made righteous. Many shall be made righteous. No, there is no universal salvation for everybody at the, at the, uh, at the cross. At least not in the sense of what many might say. No, it is many. It is all those who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all those who will bow the knee before him. It is all those who will humble themselves before Jesus and accept him as that Lamb of God which did die for their sins. And so we know that God means to be that Savior, the only Savior revealed unto the world. There is no other Savior revealed as Jesus is revealed as the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior. And so in that sense, he is the universal Savior of all those that would believe. But he does not take the human responsibility away. He still calls upon us to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
Father, should I say, save me? We find that Jesus' words here in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, save me from this hour. Is Jesus asking that the Father should just save him? Or is Jesus saying in the form of a question, Father, if it be possible, save me. Well, this is a very interesting thought, that perhaps Jesus is putting this in the form of a question. Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. And so uh, John 18:37 says, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So Jesus says to Pilate, I came into this world for this very reason. The human nature in the Son of Man must be tested. And Jesus felt the weight of the hour that he was to suffer for the sins of the world. You may remember when the Lord Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested of the devil. And so he was tempted and tested in every way. And it seems like at every critical moment in Christ's life, he found a test to prove himself to be who he said he was. I think maybe, you know, in some sense, at every critical moment in our Christian lives, the Lord sends us a little test every now and then too. That he causes us to come to kind of a loggerhead with the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And will we be tested and proven to be who we say we are. Not only believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but those who would call themselves Christians because we are followers of Christ. Albert Barnes comments, Father, save me. This ought undoubtedly to have been read as a question, according to Barnes. Quote, shall I say... Father, save me? Shall I apply to God to rescue me? Or shall I go forward to bear these trials? As it is in our translation, it represents him as actually offering the prayer and then checking himself. The Greek will bear either interpretation. The whole verse is full of deep feeling and anxiety. Now remember Jesus is is 100% human and he is 100% God. Why shouldn't then we see a human element in the life of Christ as well as a divine 
And so at this critical moment of anxiety over what was to come, he prays unto God the Father. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown comment, And what shall I say? He is in a strait betwixt two. The death of the cross was and could not be appalling to his spirit. Could not but be appalling to his spirit. But to shrink from absolute subjection to the Father was worse still. In asking himself, what shall I say, he seems as if thinking aloud, feeling his way between two dreadful alternatives, looking both of them sternly in the face, measuring, weighing them, in order that the choice actually made might be seen, and even by himself, the more vividly felt, to be a profound, deliberate, spontaneous decision. Matthew Poole adds his further insight, saying, Father, save me from this hour, this hour of my passion. It is the same with that in our Savior's last prayer, let this cup pass from me and must be understood with the same qualifications there expressed. If it be thy will, if it be possible, by his blessed example he hath taught us under the distresses of our spirit whether to flee, what to do. Perhaps you have come to some critical moment in your life and, and you have thought within yourself should I continue with my testimony for the Lord realizing of the circumstances and what may come about because of it maybe it was a moment in your family when it would be easier for you just to not say anything or not be as strongly known as a believer in your family. And so you might have thought within yourself, I guess I just will be quiet. But then, you begin to have second thoughts and you say, why should I? Why shouldn't I speak? Why shouldn't I make known my faith? Why shouldn't I be known as a believer? Is it too great a cost for me to say that I believe that God is not only true, but that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He came to die for my sins? We have just as many conflicting feelings at times. And here is Jesus. And by the way, there were many people in the Bible who had conflicting feelings in their most difficult moments. There were many struggles in the heart of man to know to do the Father's will. Lot had to make a decision to leave Sodom to do the will of God. But his wife hesitated and looked back. Moses had to choose the will of God over the throne of Egypt or his people would have remained in bondage. David must face a giant to do the will of God or all Israel would be subdued and made slaves to the Philistines. 
Elijah must face the prophets of Baal and suffer the hum- or suffer the humiliation of Israel that Israel God's, Israel's God could not overcome Ahab and Jezebel. Noah must build an ark to carry his family and many animals to safety for a great judgment was coming upon the whole world. Abraham must believe God to leave his home and family behind and make a new future for a people that God had promised. All these and many more examples, of course, are in the Bible. They were the struggles of people who had to choose to do the will of God over their own human nature of self-preservation and of ease and of, and of the kinds of temptations and infirmities that often come upon people during these difficult times. And beloved, you too, and myself, we face these same moments. We face them. Are there Christians around the world today who have had to face these kind of circumstances? We would have to say yes. Persecuted believers in India persecuted believers in parts of Africa where there is a great deal of killing going on, ethnic cleansings as they are called, within communities where there are Christian men and women, but others come in and brutally persecute them. Over a million uh, citizens of China are being held in concentrations camps and a good part of them no doubt are Christians who are suffering under persecutions and probably they could get out of some of that if they would be willing to deny their faith and if they would be willing to be re-educated under the regime of the CCP and what about Russia and what about the Ukraine And what about the United States? Where it's becoming more and more distressing and difficult in being, as being a Christian, to stand up to authorities and to let them know that we will not be intimidated by their cancel culture or their wokeness or any other of their extremes within our society. It is okay for us to say no that we will not follow suit with what what everybody else is doing just because somebody says, you have to do it. And so the kinds of struggles that you and I face also mean that we have to do the will of God. Jesus was at this critical moment of his struggle. And he wanted to do the will of God. And whether we pose this as a form of a question, saying, Father, should I say, save me? Or whether we take it as the text is here, simply saying that he was praying as if he might be able to escape this moment. We understand the human element of it. We understand the human element of the Son of God. 
We often have many questions about the will of God of our lives, for our lives. In some things we know the will of God. For instance, in John chapter 20 and verse 31, he says, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John wrote some, some powerful statements. But he wrote that statement saying, I have basically written what I have written that you might believe upon the Son of God and believing you might believe upon His name. The will of God. But there are others as well. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Sometimes the will of God requires us to dedicate our lives to following principles of Christian living, such as in Romans 12.2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ministers of the gospel are required to live out their calling according to the will of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 5, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God, not, that, not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Ministers must do the will of God because they are called to do the will of God concerning the preaching of the gospel of Christ and the living of it out. <coughs> and then lastly, he says, it says, glorify, Father, glorify thy name. Well, Jesus came to do the will of God and to glorify the Father. And as we see here in verse 28, it says, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified and will glorify again thy name, the Father's name. I have both glorified and will glorify again. And of course, the Father sent the Son. And we find that everything Christ did in his earthly ministry was a means of glorifying the Father in heaven. And his ministry for some three years was all for this one purpose that he might be known as the Savior of the world. And that he might drink of that cup that none other could drink of. That he might come to that hour of suffering and suffering and death as none other could bear that suffering and death but the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. And yes, the Father 
did glorify his name in Christ in sending him into this world. And the Father would glorify himself again when Jesus would bear the sins of the world upon the cross. Since the Son came to do the will of the Father, and that the Father and the Son are one in purpose, in being, quote, and the word, of, word was with God, and the word was God, John 1.1, 1, 1. there is no doubt to glorify the Father was to glorify the Son as well. They are both God. Adam Clark comments, Father, glorify thy name. By the name of God is to be understood himself. In all his attributes, his wisdom, truth, mercy, justice, holiness, which were all more abundantly glorified by Christ's death and resurrection than they had ever been before, Christ teaches here a lesson of submission to the divine will. And of course that submission would lead him to the cross. So that glory may redound to the name of God the Father. Some manuscripts read, Father, glorify my name. Other manuscripts read, glorify thy son. Interesting is, some manuscripts interpret it one way, some manuscripts interpret it strictly the other way. But in reality, it seems that both are true. Calvin makes this statement, Father, glorify my name. By these words, he testifies that he prefers the glory of the Father to all things else and even neglects and disregards his own life. And the true regulation of all our desires is to seek the glory of God in such a manner that all others shall give way to it. For it ought to be reckoned by us an abundant recompense leading us to endure patiently all that is vexatious or irksome. So, in other words, what he is saying is, in fact, for you and I as well. One of the supreme things that you and I desire as being Christians is to glorify God. In fact, according to the Westminster Catechism, I believe it is that the supreme duty of man is to glorify God. And so that is the one thing that in our true desire to honor God, whatever circumstances we might be faced with, whatever trial, whatever aspect of the will of God, whatever infirmity, whatever suffering, whatever kinds of temptations, we desire to glorify God. Of course, in our own human weaknesses, because we are not divine, except by the work of the Spirit of God in us, we find that we struggle upon that basis quite regularly. 
And so it is difficult for us at times. I have both glorified it, it is as if he had said, continuing with Calvin's comment, I will finish what I have begun, for God never leaveth the work of his hands imperfect, as it is said in Psalm 138, 8. But as it is the purpose of God to prevent the offense of the cross, he not only promises that the death of Christ will be glorious, but also mentions that commendation, the numerous ornaments with which he has already adorned it. John 12:28. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The voice of the Father here, of course, is something we find uniquely mentioned at critical times in Jesus' ministry. When the Father speaks from heaven, it is so others may know his will and purpose for sending his Son to die for the sins of the world. And that is what he says in verse 29. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. This voice came not be this voice came be, not because of me, but for your sakes. Not because Jesus was hesitating, not because Jesus needed to hear it, but for for your sakes, for the sake of those people who were there. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew three seventeen, and lo a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration in Luke 9.35, And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Isaiah the prophet spoke of him in Matthew 12.18, and recorded, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. That actually comes out of Isaiah. In the second psalm, it is recorded of Jesus, I will declare the decree, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And Peter gives this testimony of Jesus in 2 Peter 1.17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. The people that were there and heard became witnesses of these things. In John twelve twenty nine, And so as we consider what transpired in Jesus' prayer, he seems to be doing it in public, not in private. He seems to be doing it where people could hear him. 
and where they could hear the voice of God the Father. He is making these statements in the sense of his humanity, realizing that he was being allowed to suffer the temptations and infirmities of the human flesh, that he might die more appropriately as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. The end result is that by the death of Christ, he became our righteousness. He became our righteousness. And so as we reflect upon these things, there is much for us to consider, even in our own lives. And no doubt you and myself, both, that we feel these infirmities many times, these sufferings, these temptations, these kinds of things that cause us to ask God, Lord, save me from this hour. And yet he allows us to go through many of the sufferings and temptations that we go through. Just that we might go to the Savior who has already borne them for us and that we might realize that Christ is our righteousness and that he might be known as our true Savior and Lord. Father, glorify thy name. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you that you bring us to the cross of Christ and these reflections even before he goes there that we might realize the great work of redemption and that we ourselves may put ourselves in a certain place where we suffer these things, yet realizing, Lord, that Christ bore them for us first. We give thanks and praise to you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.